Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label and leaflet. Good morning. Oh, no need for EastEnders for the drama. Just tune in to Westminster. 44 days and then Thursday lunchtime. Gone. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Well, no, it had been threatened, but it was perhaps Anya Lawler who, earlier in the week, put it best. What the actual is going on? Morning, Ireland. Although long threatened when the axe did finally fall on Liz Truss, it was swift. This is how it went down Wednesday, about four in the afternoon. Suella Braverman resigns. Here's George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times, on drive time. This all happened in the last um, 45 minutes or so, and um, Westminster's awash with speculation about what's happened here. But plainly, a very dramatic move um, for the Home Secretary, one of the most important people of the British government, to be leaving her position after less than six weeks in office. This comes a week after Liz Truss sacked her Chancellor. And as you say, there's speculation about why she's gone. Um, as I say, we don't know why she's gone. There's some speculation reporting by ICB News that it might be because of some kind of security issue. But as I say, we don't know that. That hasn't been confirmed by anyone. Mm. But nevertheless, it just adds to the overall sense of utter chaos and mm. panic. I the fourth Home Secretary in four years, I think. Well, we've had four Chancellors in four months. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it is starting, it honestly. This country is starting to resemble, um, you know, a developing country in the way that I think things have been handled at the moment. It's absolute chaos. I think a lot of Tory MPs just want this to stop. And then accusations of manhandling ahead of a vote on fracking. Or was it a fracking vote masquerading as a confidence vote? With Claire, Quentin Letts, political sketch writer with The Times of London. What was it like for you watching that last night? Oh, it's tremendous fun for those of us who are sketch writers. I mean, anyone who's been a parent will know um, know this sort of thing. The children are very tired. <laughs> and uh, when the children get tired, all sorts of misbehaviour happens and people start screaming at each other. Um, some of those comments you were reading out earlier, there's a certain amount of hyperbolic gymnastics going on. Um, uh, whips have been uh, bullies in the past and would no doubt do it in the future. And I remember at the time of the Maastricht um, shenanigans, John Major and another minister uh, um, guiding very forcefully one hesitant backbencher towards the right lobby in the vote. So this sort of thing is not entirely unknown. But uh, the fact, perhaps, the slight comic element of what the person doing it last night allegedly was Therese Coffey, who's a short, stocky de- deputy prime minister, short, stocky woman. She's a good line-out uh, lifter, I think you'd say, in rugby terms. And uh, that, just, uh, that, that, that lent a sort of vivid cartoon element uh, to yeah, proceedings. Yeah. Don't, don't let's lose sight of the silliness of all this and of, um, of a political class oh. behaving as politicians do in a rather venal way. But put all of that so-called silliness together 
and she had to go. Later on drive time, Kevin Maguire of the Mirror and the silliness hadn't quite ended. Kevin, the lettuce won. The lettuce did, uh, <laughs> did win the day. Our newspaper lettuce next to Liz Truss, which would last the long, longest. And it did. Uh, she's had an incredibly turbulent six weeks. Uh, gone with that 90-second speech, no contrition, no saying uh, sorry. But now she's left behind utter chaos, a total frenzy. Uh, Conservative parties in meltdown, uh, Britain, again, doesn't have a functioning uh, government. And we could have, or we're going to have, a third prime minister in what would really be two months. I've never known any anything like this in British politics. Did, did, I've been one... covering it on and off for 34 years. But you go all the way back. Never in peacetime has a governing party dumped two prime ministers it during incredible. a and later, Sarah put this to former Conservative MP Matthew Paris. I wonder how damaging all of this do you think has been for the Conservative Party? I saw one MP being quoted a little earlier today saying this is the last chance to get it right and if you don't get this right this time, I think this person was, was predicting the end of the Conservative Party as we know it. It's quite imaginable. There is just a chance that by acting quickly and by getting an obviously sane leader, uh, they can claw back some of their reputation, but they have taken a terrific knock and I can't even imagine the party simply falling apart. Well, they have until Monday at 2pm to find that obviously sane leader. And prospective candidates need to get the backing of 100 MPs in order to be in the running. Names being bandied about Rishi Sunak, a shoe-in, Penny Mordaunt, possibly, and Pina Colada's tossed into the Caribbean Sea, Boris Johnson. On Late Debate, Katie put this to John Rental, political commentator with The Independent. The decision to, to make the bar for nomination uh, quite high, that you would need 100 MPs to back you before you could get on the ballot paper. It, will, will that keep Boris Johnson out, do you think? It should do. Um, I, th- I think he would struggle to get 100 uh, MPs, but it's, it, it's, it's so rather obviously designed to keep him off the ballot paper that... Uh, uh, it, it might annoy people and push push a, f- a few into his camp who who wouldn't otherwise support him and who would have you know who have incredibly short memories um, and can't remember why uh, he was got rid of in the first place. But there are plenty of Conservative MPs who are threatening to resign uh, from the party and stand as independents if if Boris Johnson comes back. So. He, I mean, he really would be a divisive candidate. I mean, people are suggesting that you know Rishi Sunak would be divisive. Boris Johnson would be would be far more dis, far more divisive. I just see a texture. Uh, says the UK needs its mojo back, not its bojo back. Uh, from <laughs> Brendan in Tralee. you can have that one for free, John. Uh, well, the one thing we don't need is those ghastly <laughs> Boris puns. <laughs> But are we going to get them? Claire put this to Will Walden, former communications director to Boris Johnson. Is he up for this? Um, is he up for it? It's a good question. The, the, the one thing that your listeners probably need to know is that um, Boris hates losing. And I suspect that he won't do this, um, to Jerry's point, if he can't make the threshold of 100. And more importantly, if he can't see a path to second place, because that's the important thing. This is now, if there are two candidates at the end, it's in the hands of the party membership. And the party membership, unlike the rest of the country, and it seems a majority of Tory voters, um, are still with Boris. And I suspect if he gets to the final two, he would win it. 
But there's another consideration, and that is that if he were to win it, he comes back to inherit an almighty mess that ultimately he will have to own. The cost of living crisis and everything goes with it. And the polls this morning, um, you know, polls regularly put them 30 points behind. There's a poll this morning that, that puts that gap even wider. And it's therefore Labour's election to lose in two years' time. And I think that, you know, it would be extraordinary if Boris Johnson were chosen because he'd forget everything that, that's happened before. But I think it speaks to the division and confusion at the heart of the Conservative Party about what it stands for. They don't know what they stand for. They have no unity candidate. And that's what's putting Boris in the mix, in spite of everything that happened only a few months ago, uh, and making him a serious contender. Will Walden with Claire yesterday. And yes, it has been high drama across the water. Hard to look away. But there are, of course, very real repercussions from all of this for UK citizens and the political process. On Morning Ireland, this was Rachel's opening question to Conservative MP Crispin Blunt. Before we talk about the likely next leader of the Conservative Party, how much damage do you think has been done both to the economy and to people's perception of politics by the events of the past few weeks? Well, it has been somewhere between a circus and a pantomime, I think, for uh, the last six weeks. So undoubtedly there will have been damage done to uh, politics. It's another reason why we need a a leader who has self-evident seriousness of purpose um, to help repair that. But uh, repair is needed. There's no question of that. Interesting times. There we shall leave it for now. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Maths week is over. Aww. But fret not. Here is a quick puzzle for you. Answers in about four minutes. You have four white socks and three black socks loose in a drawer. How many socks would you have to pull out to be certain of having a pair of the same colour? Once more, you have four white socks and three black socks loose in a drawer. How many socks would you have to pull out to be certain of having a pair of the same colour? For some, that is joy. For others, dread at the five. Carry the three, divide by and gently weep while you eat the pie. However, Francis McCarthy, physicist, astronomer and former teacher, clearly a smarty pants, is on a mission to make us all love the maths. But as she told Drive Time, even she suffered from something known as maths anxiety. Oh, maths. Loathing kind of feeling that you get. It can even be, you know, the high achievers suffer maths anxiety. I was no slouch at school. I liked school. I was good at it. And in math class, I would hide under the table if I didn't know the answer. I'd drop my rubber or my pencil and I'd be rummaging for it. So I figured I wouldn't get asked if I couldn't be seen. Oh, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, a little bit of an ostrich about it, I think, there. <laughs> but I liked maths and I was good at it. But I wanted to make sure that I stayed good at it and that I didn't show that I didn't know something. So children as young as infants are coming to school with maths anxiety. They've got a sore tummy on the day that maths is coming up. And there's lots being done to help improve the situation. Because if maths is your anxiety point, you're not going to succeed at maths. And maths is literally everywhere. So why do you think then, Francis, it's okay, or people feel like it's okay, including myself now, I'd have to throw myself in this basket, to sort of almost say proudly, oh, I'm awful at maths. But would you say it, I'm awful at reading? You know, those words, they're really hard. Can't read them. We think of maths in a different way than we do of the other life skills. And 
we need to kind of promote even that positive attitude towards maths from when children start school, even before they start school, the early years activities that is being so beautifully done with the early years environment with Ashter is playing with maths, playing with number. But Cormac as ever, love Seuss. Hang on a second there, because in one sense, uh, three and three is six. It's not seven. It's not four. I know. So, so the stakes are very high arith- for maybe somebody who's four or five, six yeah. learning that. You're either right or wrong. And that's where... Yes. But Maybe that's you, you're arithmetic. looking to be a perfectionist. And I think some people confuse arithmetic, so the, the rules of number and how number works, with the broader field of mathematics, this creative, imaginative sphere. There's more than one way to get an answer. Yes, three and three is six. But what can you do with numbers that is beyond simple arithmetic? Is it being taught incorrectly then at that well, level? It's not so much being taught incorrectly as there is this feeling that you can succeed in mathematics if you've got your arithmetic basics. In junior infants, children do number one to five. They're not even getting up to six. Mm. And yet children are presenting into primary school sort of overachieving. The, the early years environment are pushing arithmetic facts as evidence that they've done mathematics. And I feel that we really should pull back and slow down, go with lower stakes activities, that the the language is a low stakes, high ceiling. How many times in a math class were you doing something different to the person next to you? And did that tell you that you weren't good at math? Mm -hmm. Much better to have activities that everybody can engage with, but you can take it further if that's your interest. Sounds to me a little bit like dumbing down maths, which, you know, I think as a student I would have been all for, but... (laughs) It's not dumbing down maths, it's making maths accessible and improving children and their parents' confidence in maths. One-sixth of parents in Ireland say they can't help their children with their maths homework because they don't know enough maths. That is interesting. So, parents of Ireland, where do you stand? Because it is sock solution time, just before the line breaks down. (laughs) Oh no. Oh no, your line is just breaking up on us and we've got a text in from a listener wondering if the answer is six to my riddle, Francis. Are you there? <laughs> I am here, I am here. Sorry Go on, t- tell us quickly because we have to wrap anyway. Is the answer six? If you pull out two socks, either they're a pair or the next one you pull will make a pair. So it's three. Uh, it's three. Oh, somebody else texted five. Matter, <laughs> it doesn't matter how many socks. They've given you too much information in that puzzle. Okay. It doesn't matter how it's many It's the puzzle's fault. Okay, You're we'll no go with slow. that. Yeah. Well, done, no well done. Oh, man. From drive time. The Doc on One this week was fascinating. Filled with twists and turns. A girl turns up on O'Connell Street, but who is she and what is she doing here? She seemed to be in good health, albeit a little thin for her age, a little bit emaciated. She appeared pleasant, but didn't communicate, didn't want to speak, no eye contact. She kept the hair down over her face. She would recoil from any physical interactions. She did create some doodles on a page, an image of a gun, an image of a a cross, an image of an airplane. Then some people formed the opinion that this was signs of criminality or human trafficking or or such like. We didn't form that opinion. As I said, we keep an open mind. The way she gave clues was unusual. She used a pen to write a name on her foot, and that name was uh, Marlowe de Berg. So the guards were obviously um, concerned about this. 
there was no uh, indication of that name being anywhere here in Ireland. Uh, like many avenues in this case, in the early stages, led to a dead end for the guards. They decide to circulate a photograph of her. And it is then that we learn about the many lives this woman has led and the many, many lies she has told. She was really good at her story. She was very clever in the way that she found them. She obviously did her research on them. She knew who she was targeting and she knew how to target them. Trust me, your head will spin. Girl at the GPO from the Dock on One team. On Arena last night, live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, the big reveal, the winner of the RTE Short Story Competition. Its title, Big Why, Little Why. Just then, there is a splashing commotion behind them and people turn to see a great puddle forming at the bottom of the now largely empty frame in the adjoining room where Miro's man with pipe was framed. The pale grey-blue puddle reforms itself as an amoebic blob and starts to make its way with great effort to the area in front of Guernica where it eventually stops. The wife stifles a scream and grabs her startled husband's arm. Man with pipe says something in muffled Spanish into the ground. Nobody understands. The blob repeats itself louder. Help me, the blob finally says in heavily accented English, and the father and son kneel either side and gently assist it to an uncertain standing position. Andrew Bennett reading that winning story and its author Brendan Colleen had joined Sean earlier in the week. It's one of the things you do, uh, Brendan, is this this flitting, I suppose, from a very real situation into a surreal uh, situation. Uh, you know, the, 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 the man with pipe becoming a, a, a blob really on the floor and then uh, coming back up and talking to us in the other part of the gallery. What's the joy of that mix of rea- reality and surreality for you? You know, I can't, I suppose, you know, I have two definite styles of writing and one is very observational and classical and very real. And then I do have a tendency to break off into something a little uh, eccentric. (laughs) I don't necessarily know why it happens, but certainly that day when the setting is a modern art gallery, I kind of felt I could indulge myself. And it, it happened very quickly. I mean, I started writing the story on my phone. Uh, and it very quickly I had the couple arguing and then very quickly I had Miro's man with pipe turn, you know, ending up in it and I was thinking, right, where is this going? Um, and I just went with it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think there's something, it, it's it's a tricky business, this kind of magical realism turn because you can get it, you can get it wrong and sometimes I read it and I don't really like it myself. But I think, I think when you do ground it in a story that has, you know, it reassures the reader mm. enough uh, to go with you I think it can work. And but I suppose it is tricky. part of it is if we look at the title of the story, Big Why, Little Why, it's what you're looking at in some ways. You know, why can this not happen in the story? We, we can have sur- surreality yeah. and reality side by side. The guy in front of the, the Picasso painting is sweating the small stuff. There are questions in life that are more important than that. Well, I think I think all short stories are actually about time and the passing and time and mortality and things that are often very abstract when you think about them. But we, we tend to not look at them too closely. And uh, I certainly think abstraction is a good way of focusing mm. us or making us rethink. And I think that the likes of Picasso and Joyce and Frida and these people were brilliant at shocking us for a moment to, to reconsider yeah. the things that are right in front of us. 
Brendan Colleen talking about Big Y, Little Y, the winner of this year's RTE short story competition. And that, in a roundabout way, brings us to all the things left unsaid confessions of love and regret, the latest offering from Michael Harding. And he'd gone up to Donegal to recover after illness. I spent my time alone in this house in Donegal and it was tough because I was only healing. I was on a lot of medicines. I was going to... You know, and why did you decide to do that? Was it because, because you had a deadline, or was it no? It reason? was mortality. I, right. I needed spiritual retreat. I really needed, and it was. What ins- is spiritual retreat? It's going to Donegal and being on your own. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. That, that's it's, not a good answer. I'm sorry about that. It's but, going uh, into. Okay, I'll give you a better answer. Right. It's going to the the room within your own heart and close the door yeah, and so pray you, there to your father who is God, and he will hear you. That's what spiritual retreat means. But it's alone with your thoughts. Okay. It's alone with your thoughts, isn't I it? Know, no, no. You, you need to get away from your thoughts. Now. Right. Okay. okay. We're going to have to get ready to move the thoughts, <laughs> what they say, down into the heart. Right. So in the noose, as they say in the Greek, in the noose, that you live in the heart. And in that space, they say that love is another kind of knowing. So it's not your thoughts we're talking about when you're talking about prayerfulness, but you're talking about your heart opening to other people. And we do it all the time when we're loving people. Mm. Our hearts open to children and to parents and to lovers. So we do pray. It's a facility. But I don't the, call it, it praying, though. Well, you can call it what you like. I'm yeah. not, I'm not I imposing I the word on no, you, but no, I'm saying yeah, that's what I call it. Right. Okay. right. <laughs> Sparky, and always on Ray's mind, this. I think about death on a daily basis. Turns out, so does Michael Harding. The Grim Reaper, that sense of sort of the mortality, you know, to avoid it could probably be foolish. Mm. You might live more joyfully. If you embrace it. Exactly. And I think it's precious to me because I am beginning to see the shortness of life. Yes. Yeah. At your age. <laughs> yeah, at my age, yeah. <laughs> No, no. But, but it is like think I think about death on a daily basis and, and there you go yeah. when I say that to people they say you're, you're a freak that's very morbid that's very depressing it's not no I would think that somebody who doesn't is yeah. the person who I'd be worried about you know and then of a Monday afternoon just before the news they got right into it theology philosophy the meaning of life whatever you want to call it I still call it God I call it Buddha I call it Allah or the God. But whatever way we express it, they're different languages. And I do think that we might be facing times where it is still urgent to find new institutions or ways beyond institutions, but ways that recognise the sacred. But Michael, we, we established at the beginning that institutions go are, wrong. Yeah. They go wrong. That's the nature of them. Yeah, There's an evolution of institutions. They start off... And they're small and, and, and they're, and, they're and well-meaning. We keep, yeah. and then, and then but they, we also keep reinventing for, yeah. for our own time. We well, still is it not, need... Is it not community? Is it not community? It is, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what it is then. Yeah. Let, let, let's not call it religion or whatever. Let's just call it community. And let's work on building communities that people feel safe in. I go for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going for that. Where people have yeah. housing and a good health service. People have good education. Yeah, you no, know, don't get too... Uh, no, but where people can hang out in the street <laughs> and not feel unsafe. That's that's what we should be doing. Yeah. I think. Yeah. As as the human race. And take the power away from all those outdated, archaic 
institutions. Okay, I'm listening to you. Yeah. That's okay. why I'm pausing. Yeah, no, but And that's I take a... your point because I say to myself, okay, I, there's nothing I disagree with in that. The only thing I'm adding, what am I saying different than that is... Well, you're saying... Is there's, sharing there's... my own experience that as an individual... But you're, you are saying there's a deity. Yeah, but, but, but the way that I would find community is through that. You know, right. Do you know what I mean? That, well, well, that the well, very well, notion of community to me is founded on the sacred. But that's, but that's way before the sacred existed, there was community. Well, this is where we disagree. <laughs> and Darcy, on the road to Damascus, led by Mr Harding, not any time soon. Faith in Ireland is fitcha as they say in Irish. It is absolutely weaved into community. That there is no community. That doesn't mean it's 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 right though. I'd like, but it's not, anything, it's not it, whether but, it's right or wrong. No, but but in anything, right? Here's the thing, right? Why is why is the thing the way it is? Why was it? Why did it start that way? Let's go back to where it started. Do those circumstances still exist? If they don't, let's relook at it, re-examine it, mm. and maybe it doesn't fit. Maybe maybe it was wrong. You know how it established itself. The genesis of it was all flawed. You Isn't get, that a possibility? Is that it's a possibility? a possibility, but the observation that you're making is, is to me, a bit headlocked, right? right? It's a bit intellectual. It's a bit talking should. This is the way the world should be. And who's going to make it? No, yeah. Who's going to make it right? You, because you're the righteous? No, I won't make it like, right. Like no, we're not actually dying of anything at the moment no. as a culture, except righteousness. Right. You know, righteousness is no, killing I, us. I, I, it's, and it's not religion that's making people righteous. No. No, well, like, yeah. And like, if you take if you take Rumi or you take Sufi tradition, you take, you know, any of the, the heart of, you know, the wisdom teachings of Jesus or Buddha or anybody, you find there's a wisdom door to live your life better and to understand that beyond good and evil, beyond what is right and wrong, this is Rumi, he says, beyond what is right and wrong, there is a field. I will meet you there. Right. So it's like you're on one side of this argument, I'm on the other. But when you and me embrace, we are one. Because we're human. And that's a deep, profound thing. And that is the sacred. It's with us all the time. Uh, and we get on and I enjoy our chats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> never the train shall meet. Or maybe one day, maybe one day. Uh, I'll convert you yet. Yes, I'll be in that field waiting for you. I'll be up in Donegal <laughs> saying me prayers for Ray Darcy that he might be converted to religion. <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath. But a very interesting discussion, Michael Harding with Ray. And from the big questions in the afternoon to mid-morning irritations. If you leave me now, you'll take away the biggest part of me. Ooh, now, baby, please don't I don't know about you, I, I think that's an example of a musical pet peeve, a track for whatever reason you just can't stand. That's mine. It's like nails on a blackboard inside your head. Claire. But she was joined by Simon Marr, who brought his own musical irks to the turntable. And so it is. The colder water. The blow. Now, I just want to clarify this really quickly because it's not Damien Rice you have the oh, problem no, no. with here. I, Damien Rice and the album O is is great and I really, really like it. Although what it did was is that around about that time I was going to a lot of live gigs and what happened was as soon as Damien Rice uh, released that album, 
everybody got themselves an acoustic guitar and was strumming sincere, heartfelt ballads like that. And no matter what band you ever went to see, one of them was there with his jumper with the holes in the elbows <laughs> playing the songs and playing them without without half of the sincerity or any of the musical talent that Damien Rice had. And I think that's it. That did it for me. And what it does is that song, unfortunately, reminds me of all of them. Ooh, the high bar stool in Whelan's or Dolan's. And then this contender for the worst lyric ever. There's something about Desri and rhyming ghost with toast. It's just, it's just too much for me. And it's every time, every time I hear it. I'm afraid of the dark, especially when I'm in a park and there's no one else around. Ooh, I get the shivers. I don't want to see a ghost. It's a sight that I fear most. I'd rather have a piece of toast. Watch the evening news. No, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. that. Is, it's inexcusable, Claire. Inexcusable. <laughs> no, it doesn't do the Chicago thing to me, so oh, I can't... Thing, no, yes, yeah. You mean this? If you leave Everybody, now baby, baby, please don't go. Back in a bit. Welcome back. There was a lot on the radio this week about the Irish and booze. Some bristle when we thrust a pint of the black stuff into every visitor's paw. Others say, well, it's who we are. With Ryan on Monday, Donald Fallon, he of the History Podcast and now the book, Three Castles Burning, the History of Dublin in Twelve Streets. And he talked about Watling Street in the Liberties. But Watling Street is right there by the gates of St James's Gate Brewery and it brings you right down to the Liffey. And I think what people will know about that area of the city, it's the side of the Guinness Brewery. Yes. But that's an area that was full of breweries, full of distilleries. I mean, Dublin was once home to 55 breweries. Was it really? Which is amazing. How did we get a reputation <laughs> for being such a boozy country? More, more than two dozen distilleries. <laughs> really? That so many? How did that exist? Well, how did that thrive? with IPAs, but yes. Well, yeah, and, yeah, and whiskey's back. And whiskey's, whiskey's booming. Back. Yeah, what for sure. the liberties is Teeling, Liberties, uh, Rowan Co., Pierce Lines. Like, distilling is really in fashion again. Okay. So, that again, sometimes it's the contemporary city that influences the streets I picked. Why is whiskey back in such a big way? How's that happened? And let's look at the history of whiskey. So that's what's going on really on, on Watling Street in a in a it, big way. This is the street with that strange looking windmill feature. You can see uh, it from the street. Yeah, yeah what, it's what, St. Patrick's. What is that? That's the last remnant of the original Rose Distillery. Okay. And that where figure on top is St. Patrick. He's four foot tall. You never, you never no, see I would it never, the ground. I would He's never four foot tall. That, yeah. it was one of the largest smock windmills in Europe in its day. But it's just these weird bits of industrial history yeah. that are still sitting on the streets, reminding us of, of other things. But some of these streets are personal. My granddad worked for Guinness. Did he? So my mom would have been what they call the Guinness baby. You know, like her yeah. early doctor would have been Guinness. And Guinness looked after their workers from the cradle to the grave, really. So, so my grandmother worked in Guinness, right? Todd Andrew's wife and uh, Mary. And she, could, for all we know, could have worked beside your grandmother. It's, uh, yeah. You know, easily. Extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, the Guinness archive is so powerful. I was able to pull it up and everything about him and how late, how often he was late for work and all this stuff. An amazing so, archive. Yeah, which is extraordinary. Yeah. But with all of those breweries came fierce competition for your drinking loyalty. The Phoenix Ale was seen as the Catholic version of... Yeah, at a time of, there was even a, a Daniel O'Connell Ale, which is which is amazing. amazing. Political, political rivalry, you know, and there was a, a little sectarian ditty among some of O'Connell's followers. They used to say, to be sure you'd adhere of that heresy beer... They brew it to poison the Pope. 
the praise the brewer a sin is. His name is Art Guinness. For salvation, he never can hope. <laughs> so, so you can tell <laughs> someone's great. politics from, from what brews. was sitting in front of them. Oh, that's pub. great. Isn't that amazing? That is great. That- <laughs> and did Daniel O'Connell's son at one point run yeah, the yeah, Phoenix Brewery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they used O'Connell shamelessly uh, in the advertising for for the drink, which is which is mad. Good you know? branding. Imagine a, a TD on the on the label of a pint today. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Fallon with wine so steeped in the drink we are, historically anyway. Today, it might be a different story. Certainly Guinness, as we all know, is owned by Diageo, a very different kettle of corporate fish, bringing us to Tuesday's Liveline. We do drink a lot on this programme, I mean, as an item. Good to get that clarified. At issue, the Guinness sponsorship of a TV programme, Homecoming, The Road to Mullingar, with Lewis Capaldi. All presented by Niall Horan, he and Lewis being besties. So, come to Ireland and we'll have a few sneaky pints along the way, it of course being shorthand for Bigara and the crack. Kevin, a reformed drinker, was not impressed. Proudly sponsored by Guinness. I think it's wrong. And Niall Horan is a fine young man. He's 29. His demographic would be 29 down as opposed to 29 up. Now, I'm an older man. I'm 60. He's gone on 61. And uh, I remember the time when... Do you remember the ad where the guy used to come in and read the evening hurdle and sit in the bar and have a drink? Mm -hmm. And that was the demographic. Now that has seems to be changing down to catch a younger demographic. And and alcoholism and uh, addiction is crazy at the moment and I myself am concerned because that's the type of age group that it starts at. Anne however disagreed. You saw the documentary were you overwhelmed by the Guinness product placement Anne? Not a bit Joe it was a great programme it was light hearted it was fun it was very entertaining I mean these people just want to get a life moaning they're always moaning about something Ooh but Kevin was well able well, I've lived many lives. It's not my first rodeo, Joe. But I, I take her point. She thinks that I'm a moaner. Uh, I take her point. I'm not. I'm a concerned individual. Mm-hmm. And I'm concerned about people falling into addiction. And I'm concerned about that the likes of, of, of those type of companies can come on mm-hmm. and, and bring their product and shove it in your face. Yeah. Sorry, can I just say there, ah, was yes. either of them drunk at any stage? Well, I wasn't with them 24 hours, seven days a week. They weren't on TV. They weren't drunk on TV. No, 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 I'm not saying that everybody drinks Guinness. I'm not saying everybody drinks Heineken. I know a lot of people who don't drink. I know a lot of people yeah. who do drink. I know a lot of, not, not a lot of people who are not drink, are drunk 24-7. And I don't yeah. know if Leo Capaldi and um, Niall Horden were drunk at all. They probably were not. They weren't drunk they on the television just, at any time. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no,
And he kind of was. Here's just one caller, Patrick. You've had me off to drink, listen to you, Joe. A family okay. programme, a family programme, Nile Horton. That's what it was. Okay. It wasn't so deep and so depthful and everything. And uh, Kevin, yes, well, you have your views, but I wouldn't agree with some of them. Things hotted up mightily when Kevin, for the second time, was told to get a life. Um, I, I sat down on Sunday night and I watched it with my 20-year-old daughter and we really thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and my son came home from work yesterday and I had it recorded and he watched it and he thoroughly enjoyed it. My son is 23, my daughter is 20 and they didn't take out of it that they would be start, starting to drink Guinness tomorrow or at the weekend. Mm. It was just a thoroughly enjoyable programme. And did you notice that Guinness had sponsored it? From I, the I, I did and I said to myself... I'll wait and during the week somebody is going to be given out that that programme was sponsored by Guinness. I just said there'll be somebody out there now and they'll say, oh, that shouldn't be. And what would you say to that somebody? His name is Kevin. Ah, go and get a bloody life. That's what I'd say. Fair enough. <laughs> That's what I'd say. You know, maybe um, you should ask it, first did I have one. Well, it's, it's, was it, did you watch the programme yourself, all of us? Why would I watch it when I, when I completely disagree with the sponsorship? But when you say to well, me, go and get a life, what I'm asking you is, do you, you know nothing about me. You don't know what life I've had. I've probably had as good, if not better life but, than you have had. But I, but I know I, an awful lot more. I know a lot more. No, 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 Gene, you don't. Then, no, 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 Gene, you're not going to disqualify Kevin or anyone else from this discussion on the basis that you didn't sit through the full hour or whatever. It's Guinness that are pushing the documentary. Why would they be pushing the documentary? Because Guinness, because they know it works. And it works to give the people, people look up to heroes, especially younger people look up to heroes. There's no doubt that Niall Horn especially is a hero, especially of younger people. And there he is quaffing Guinness. But it's not, it's not good enough, Gene, to say to the likes of Kevin, go and get a life. It just oh, well, isn't. I'm sorry, and if I offended him. No, well, no, he didn't, he didn't just... offend me at all. He didn't offend me at all. Um, I want to make that very clear. I can fully understand your views, and uh, I know that you understand my views, and a lot of this is set out of frustration, so there's absolutely no apology. Okay, well, that's, that's, fair. that's very oh, okay. great. What a gentleman. And as an exploration of the intersection of alcohol, advertising, and our sense of identity, it was very interesting. But to finish, this detour into oysters. Yes, oysters. So where did oysters come from? Big, Joe, the Dead. oysters, Joe, they visited what? Carlingford. Yeah, well, oysters are good And they you. went to an oyster farm. Well, oysters of o- omega-3. There's Pardon? no... Oysters have omega-3. You can, you can serve an oyster to a two-year-old child in a restaurant if, you, if the child asks for it. Yeah, but Joe, it was part of the programme. Yeah, but the, the Carlingford oyster. Uh, what am I doing talking about oysters? What am I doing talking about oysters? From Liveline. Now with Miriam on Sunday, star spotting the curious alchemy of casting. And Roz Hubbard is one of the industry's leading agents. And she was ever so slightly indiscreet. What's been your biggest challenge, say, as a casting director over the years? Which movie? Angela's Ashes. We couldn't find children who looked scary and famine-stricken, which was what the story was about. All the children in Limerick and Dublin and Cork and everywhere we went looked healthy, God bless them, and like little American kids. But we got there in the end. There's a stringy kid everywhere, somewhere. 
And there were tales about Kate Winslet, Orlando Bloom, of course the lovely Saoirse Ronan and Colin Farrell. Well, he came into the film centre in Dublin where we had a lovely office. As he says himself, I sure just threw myself into Hubbard's and uh, we loved him. He obviously is very attractive, brilliant looking, brilliant personality, funny, a proper Dubliner. Um, he's posher than he pretends, by the way. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we introduced him to an agent, Lisa Richards, in, in Dublin. And he was taken on and it didn't take him much time to convince the world how good he was. And of course, Colin Farrell plays Porrick in the much-talked-about Banshees of Inishirin. And on Arena, Sinead Egan talked to its writer and director, Martin McDonough. What made you want to make a film about, or a story, about stubbornness and rejection? <laughs> um, I guess those two words probably weren't in uh, it, it, literally just a sad breakup story was, yeah. was what I was really going to and, but not have it be the usual you know romantic one um, but have it to be you know a, a male friendship that ends horribly just, just felt like there was, there was something that hadn't really been seen too often That's before true, yeah. but just to keep the sadness of that was, was uppermost Brendan Gleeson's character, Colm, he very much frames his rejection of Porrick as um, him being conscious of the passage of time and wanting to devote more of the time that he has left to the things that he loves. Yeah. So it's framed as an artistic choice. Why was that a dilemma that you wanted to explore? Um, I think, well, first off, it had to be something more than just disliking a person, I think. That wouldn't have given enough drama to it. But I guess part of that is, is something that I always think I guess a lot of artists think is like, are we wasting time? Are we doing things that are getting in the way of, of creativity? So, so I think once I, I gave him almost a bit more of a reason to break up than a simple dislike, um, it allowed textures of, of art and, and time wasting and, and, um, and what we're supposed to be up to and what relationships are like uh, to factor in. I don't know if this is a fair question. But whose side are you on? Ah, I'm on, as, uh, as the father of the two characters, um, I love them both equally. I think it's probably 51% in Colin Farrell's favour. But I think on the, at the script stage, it was like 60-40, you're all with him. But because Brendan is such a sensitive actor and because we kind of discussed of his reasons for what he's doing, I think we've, we've hopefully, it's kind of equal, but... I think niceness is important and, and Colin's character is all about that. So, so I, I don't like the whole idea of artists in turmoil and being cruel to people as, as, as a useful thing. So I still lean a little bit towards Colin. As do we all, frankly. But after all that, is it worth going to see? For the reviewers on Arena, Chris Wasser and Deirdre Malumbi, most certainly yes. No. Stars, I think it's it's wonderful. It's pitch perfect. The performances, the writing, the setting—it looks amazing. I think it's the most complete and the most accomplished of McDonald's film, and probably the greatest uh, thing that we've seen from Gleason. And again, I'll add Colin Farrell. It's he's just. He's so accomplished as a performer here and it's a performance of such startling control and conviction that I would be very surprised if there wasn't okay. a nomination in his future. So I'm going to go for the full five. Full five from you. What are you saying, Deirdre? I adored this film. It took so many twists and turns that I never saw coming. I mean, there are so many ways to interpret this uh, story and its themes and conclusion. Even Chris there kind of touched on the idea of toxic masculinity. For me, I found it so striking in how it captured the isolation of rural life and how it showed how to 
be alone is really to go against human nature and how thin the line can be between insanity and art and individualism. I love a movie I can pour and pour over after seeing. Uh, so for me, this is a five and f- out of five star movie as well. A double five. Yeah, not too often. No, not too often that we get that. And if I had five to give, it would be getting five for me as well. Ooh, high praise. That is the weekend sorted. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. I do what I want, I do what I like, and the world face I know.